Okay, going to be reading from Romans chapter 1 this morning. We'll, uh, we'll first open in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time, Father. We uh, pray, dear Lord, that you would minister to us this morning, that your spirit would minister to each and every one of us that are here. Pray, dear Father, that you'd keep our, our mind and our heart and our eyes alert, that we'd be able to understand your word that we would receive it, that we would trust in it, that we would believe it. Father, I pray that you be with me this morning as I preach your word and just ask you to be a blessing to us in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Been preaching through Romans chapter 1. We're going to be reading from verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Um, Thanks, Sass. Need a bigger pulpit, Pastor. Someone to put a cup of water. Keep asking for a bigger pulpit. You know. No, just joking. It's all right. All right. Um, the first chapters, the first three chapters in Romans, um, it demonstrates with an incredible amount of clarity where we stand with respect to God. Um, if you've read the entire Bible. And you, you get to Romans chapter 1. Everything that's gone before that is sort of like, I don't know, like a... It gives you an understanding of when you're looking at Israel, you're looking how they have behaved towards God. We've seen the miracles that God's done right through that, uh, that nation. And we've seen their response. And when you look at that with any degree of honesty, you could seriously see yourself also as Israel. It's an incredible picture of us. The Old Testament's sort of like a, a big steamroller as far as demonstrating our own nature to us. Romans chapter 1 to 3 is more like a hammer. It sort of hits us exactly where we are and it helps us to have a greater understanding of, number one, where we stand with God, where we stand. It demonstrates to us with an incredible amount of clarity why we are where we are and who God is and the gospel. And it's just an incredible portion. So if you've got your Bibles open, one, uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 32. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath shewed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonour their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men. Leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Oh, I don't know how you feel after reading that. But it is an incredible picture and scope of a level of depravity within man. And it begins at not recognising God the Creator from the beginning. When you recognise who He is and you acknowledge Him and glorify God for who He is, then everything's an open book and it's wonderful for us. We get to know Him because He's revealed Himself in history. He's revealed Himself in creation. But if we don't, there is a risk of continual depravity and a depravity which we see evident in society today. So I've broken this sermon up. Um, I'm not going to be doing the the whole lot. I'm just going to be doing up to verse 25 um, and then uh, the the rest of it for next time. But the first verse in verse 16, I'll call it a statement of confidence that Paul has. The statements between verses 17 and 18 are called the statements of revelation. Verses 19 to 25 are the statements of defence. And 24 to 32 I've looked at as the statements of consequence. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He explains why he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but I'm curious on why he actually says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What's implicated in that? Is there somewhere within each one of us a certain degree of shame with respect to the gospel? With respect to our Lord? Paul brings it out that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But we have in Scripture an incredible piece of evidence of someone that did seem to be ashamed of the Gospel. And it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. We've got an event that takes place as a permanent record. The denial of Jesus Christ by the Apostle Peter. The single event occurred at possibly the most stressful time in Peter's life. Where fear of man rather than fear of God seemed to be the overriding emotion riding within him. There was a lack of, there was a degree of confusion. We don't get an insight into what Peter was thinking of at that particular time. But for him to get to the point where three times he was willing to deny Jesus, you can't help thinking that there might have been some fear involved. Confusion for sure. 
wouldn't he have been thinking something along the lines of, you know, wasn't, isn't this the Messiah? Isn't this the one that came to redeem Israel? And all of a sudden, he's taken away. Such a degree of confidence that he had earlier on in exactly the same night now leads to the point where at one point he says he is willing to die for Christ. Though all forsake thee, I will not. And yet, here he denies him. Not once. He denies him three times. And not until that incredible stare of our Lord to him and the cock crowing did he realise it. And we've got it recorded in all four of the Gospels, which is unusual. Peter was ashamed of the Gospel. We've spoken before, the Gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we found him ashamed of the Gospel. But now, well, not long after that, I'm sure that he would be able to say with Peter, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He ended up dying for him. Ended up exactly in the same situation and died for the Lord. The question that it's always asked, especially in these days, is we've got churches all over the place that seem to be ashamed of the gospel. They're not preaching the gospel, they don't share the gospel. Is that a reflection of the congregations? I'd have to say yes. That would be a reflection of the congregations. What is it within us that has a fear? What, is it, what was it within Peter that had a fear of the gospel, of sharing the gospel? Is it a lack of faith? Is it, is it not really truly believing? I mean, Peter believed... He certainly sounded like he believed. He was the one that confessed, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that was Peter that said that. And yet, something that he didn't realise, that he didn't compute within his mind, that Jesus was going to be dying for the sins of mankind. Though the Lord spoke about it, though the Lord told him time and again, right up until that very day, he said exactly the same thing, even when the woman anointed him. He says, well, why are you upset? You know, the poor you're always going to have with you. She's anointing me for my burial. Man, that's incredible things. And yet the apostles didn't realise it. And on Peter's behalf, it was a lack of faith. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He says, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You'll notice that it's not the power of his speech unto salvation. It's not the power of his convincing arguments unto salvation. It's not the power of his testimony unto salvation. Not the power of his scripture knowledge unto salvation. Nor the power of his peace and good fortune unto salvation. It's not the power of his intellect unto salvation. Not the power of majority opinion unto salvation. It's the power of God unto salvation. Friends, it has nothing to do with you. It's got nothing to do with how you present it on your intellect or anything like that. It is the power of God and it's a salvation. The Bible says that we are to just preach the gospel and let the Lord do the work that he needs to do within it. Share the gospel with people. Tell them about the Lord. And I think that it's only when you actually take you out of it that the gospel can be shared and shared wonderfully and see people's You see a response in people's eyes. I mean, I I was always giving convincing arguments. I was always going into the apologetics for people to give them reason to believe that God exists. And indeed, the Bible talks about um, us telling people the reason of the hope that is within us. But that reason is the Lord Jesus Christ. That reason is not 
um, uh, you know, scientific apologetics arguments with people. All right? The reason is the Lord. And it wasn't until I started changing how I approached it that I actually see a response in people's hearts. A response that doesn't get an argument back. A response that seems to be in the heart. They either reject in the heart or they accept in the heart. The light turns on somehow. Now, I can't be a judge of when that occurs. I can't be a judge of knowing whether what I've said is actually going to pull them away from the Lord because it does have that effect or it's going to draw them to it. I don't know if it's going to be now or tomorrow or next year. I read a book not long ago that was by a man who was about 45 years of age and he actually made an apology at the very beginning of that book to all those people that he argued against, that he um, yelled at, swore at and behaved pretty badly against the gospel. He goes, if it wasn't for your diligence and actually continuing to tell me about it, I would never have come to faith. So he looked with all intents and purposes of being totally rejecting the gospel. And yet he came to the knowledge of the truth. So I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is the first of two revelations in the next verse. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. It's the first of two revelations. This one is one that leads from faith to faith. The next reveals his wrath. But for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. This revelation of God's righteousness is made evident to all the world through the gospel of Christ. You can't separate those two verses. So that first verse in verse 16 and verse 17, you can't separate those two. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, for what? The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, wherein? Well, the gospel of Christ through the power of God unto salvation is the righteousness of God revealed. That means it is revealed from faith to faith. It goes from one person to another person. From one person's faith and it ignites the faith of those that believe. Those that believe. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation through which the revelation of the righteousness of God is made manifest. Sounds like a lot, but we're talking about God's righteousness is it's revealed in the gospel. It's revealed in the gospel. The Bible says there is neither is salvation any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. God has a clear and direct interest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He demonstrates his power through the sharing of it by faith to all who believe. The end of which is the salvation from damnation of the sinner. It's the eternal win, win, win. It's incredible. You share the gospel with someone. If they receive it and accept it, they win. You win because it's just such a wonderful blessing. And the Lord wins because that's the reason why he came. And on the other side, I think it's also true when someone rejects the gospel and they die not knowing the Lord and they find themselves in hell. It's the ultimate lose, lose, lose. Because it's not only the individual that's in hell that's lost. 
You know, it's us as well. And it's the Lord. You know, he doesn't want anyone. The Lord doesn't want anyone to be in hell. It wasn't created for anyone else. It was created for the devil and his angels, not for, not for you and I. This is why the gospel, Jesus Christ, had to come into the world. This is why he had to come. This is why he took on our punishment, what was rightfully our punishment, and died for us, separating himself from God. Our condemnation was upon him. With his stripes, we are healed. That's an incredible thought. And yet we sit silent. As if somehow we have a foolish message to share. As if somehow we haven't got something of value for people to know, you know. The Bible said the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The Bible says that the... um, was it? The preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. So those that perish, it's foolishness. But to us, it's the wisdom of God. You know? And that's what we should be sharing. The cost of eternity in hell is a cost that is going to be for eternity. It is never going to change. By the time I finish preaching this message, at least 100 people would have died. Hopefully not as a result of preaching the message. But the time that goes by, it's every 30 seconds someone's dying in the world. And you don't even have any guarantee that you're going to see today out. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know that God exists, if you have not given your life to him, you have no guarantees. The Bible says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Brethren, the idea that our good will outweigh our bad is false in every way. It doesn't work in this life, nor will it work before God. In this life, the basic expectation is to keep the law, isn't it? Your basic expectation is to be good, isn't it? The laws were given to demonstrate to us when we break the law. And when we stand before a judge or we stand before a police officer that's giving us a speeding ticket... We don't have, Let me ask you, do you use that argument? Do you say to them, well, you know, 99% of the time I'm sticking to the speed limit. You know? I mean, come on, dude. You know? Let's weigh up the good with the bad. No. You're going to pay for the breaking of the law. You don't get the reward for keeping the law because that's the basic expectation for every one of us. So why is it that we tolerate those sort of arguments when people say my good will outweigh my bad? It doesn't work that way in this life and it won't work that way before God. Makes sense. And you know, people know that. 
when you share that and make sure that that's clear, that they understand, they'll know that because they really do believe that there is some sort of a balancing act. They really believe it. Most people do. If you sit there confident to give your account before God, knowing that the breaking of any single one of his commandments will condemn you, commandments given to demonstrate to you your fallen, unredeemed state before God, because through the law is the knowledge of sin, Jesus simply said, He that believeth not shall be damned. And you know, we all lose. Exactly as I said, we all lose when, when, uh, when a sinner doesn't repent. The second revelation of God is the next verse down. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. First, we had the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith through the gospel. And now we have the wrath of God revealed from heaven. And it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God refers to his fierce anger. But it's not an anger that's empty. It's an anger with intent to punish. When you go through the scripture and you look for the word wrath, it turns up over 200 times. I didn't look up all 200. I did look up the first 50 and they're all the same. They are all the same. It relates to either a kindling of intent to punish or refers to the actual punishment itself, the wrath of God. And you'll note that it's revealed from heaven and it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness and unrighteousness can never be appeased without retribution. God's wrath is kindled against them. His anger burns hot And the revelation of his wrath is made clear against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. These hold the truth in unrighteousness. This is the evident picture of the ungodly and the unrighteous in that they place the truth not where righteousness is, but they place it in unrighteousness. They put truth in the exact opposite direction. It's a lie. Oh, just think about a lie for a second. You tell a lie and you tell it as if it's true. True? When you speak a lie, you're actually using it in place of truth. Why can't God accept that? Because God can't lie. Truth is true. And when you speak a lie, you're using it in place of truth. It's deliberate deception. Deliberate deception. People don't think anything of lying today. You know? They lie when they get up in the morning. They lie when someone says, how are you doing? You know? We don't think anything of it. We do it day in, day out. And let God be true, but every man a liar. You know what? Every man's a liar. Every man's a liar. So there can't be a simpler picture of ungodliness, it's interestingly enough. You can't get a a simpler picture of ungodliness. Why? Because the Bible says that God can't lie. And there can be no simpler picture of unrighteousness because it's false. And no lie is of the truth. The Bible speaks of two kinds of persons with respect to this. There are those that lie in wait to deceive 
and the other which uh, carries the life forward. Okay, so those that are that actually deceive, and then you've got those that are deceived, don't check it and carry that lie forward. We see that all through history. We see that all through history because no one checks the facts about anything. Very few people do. You've got fact checkers out there, you know, when people are writing books, when people are writing articles, the newspapers that come out. We read the newspapers, you know, you, you pay money for a newspaper that the vast majority of it is a lie. You sort of wonder why you're spending your money, don't you? I barely buy newspapers anymore. And generally because I've already read the back of the book, so I know what things are, what things are going to happen anyway, and I know the direction things are going. I just usually read the papers to make sure it's still heading in the right direction, you know, or in that direction. Statements of defence. These next three we'll go through fairly quickly. The next portion goes into the reasons and defence of God's wrath. It lays out in perfect clarity the total ruin of man and the justification of his wrath. This is what he says. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's an incredible portion of scripture, that one. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. The invisible things of him from the creation. You know, I'm not sure if that would have been really clear to people that were around maybe three, four hundred years ago. I'm not sure if they would have accepted that literally. I sort of mentioned to um, Pastor Steve yesterday at at school and it was, you know, um, I think it was Chuck Missler that actually said it. He said, the only time I've ever had errors is when I haven't taken the Bible literally enough. You know, and I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that and I think that's a problem for most. But God showed it unto them because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Then he says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. 1907, a gentleman by the name of Ernst Rutherford demonstrated or was able to diagram or he discovered the actual makeup of the atom. Up until that particular point, they believed that the atom was like a little solid ball, something that's invisible to the eye, right? But the atom is not completely, completely invisible. You, you, you can't see it through your eye. You can't see it through a microscope. Matter of fact, you can't see an atom through any light-giving microscope. It has to be something called an STM, which is a scanning, tunneling microscope. And what it actually does is it gives you a, an, an image on paper, so you don't see it directly, you actually see the image, it'll come up on a screen and it'll show where that atom is. Okay. Within that atom is something called electrons. Electrons flip around all over the place around the nucleus of the atom. Okay. Oh, by the way, the distance between the outer part of the atom and the actual nucleus of the atom, see, you've been, and there's only electrons in between that, that's it. Right? If you would imagine a tennis ball, okay, a tennis ball is the nucleus, all right? And the outer ring of the MCG is the outer part of the atom. And in between that is only electrons. All right? That's pretty much it. All right? So, the electrons can't be seen. They are completely invisible. Matter of fact, it's impossible to ever see them. Because they're smaller... Oh, 
going to get technical. All right. They're smaller than the light. Light emits photons. There's tiny little particles in light, right? And what we see is we see, we see everything that we see, we see because the light's reflected off it, all right? Let me give you a sort of like a big picture. If you imagine a house, okay? Imagine a house and the light particles called photons, there are like millions and millions and millions of tennis balls hitting the house, right? And bouncing off the house, right? And because of all that bounce going off the house, you actually get to make out the house, right? Are you with me so far? Is that all right? Just nod. Um, so that's, that's bouncing off the house. And because there's millions and millions of doing it all the time, you get to see the outline of the house and actually you'll get to see some detail, okay? The problem is electrons are a lot smaller than the tennis ball. They're, they're like the size of maybe a, I don't know, a, a marble compared to it, just for example. And what happens is when the light hits it, it moves it. So you can't make it out. So as soon as the light hits it, the photons actually hit the electrons and they actually moves them out of position. So you can't ever see electrons, no matter how much you try. No matter how much you try. And yet, what's amazing, there's nothing that's not made. That's a double negative, isn't it? Shouldn't say that, All right? Everything is made of atoms. Everything is made of atoms. Everything is made by that which is not seen and can't be seen. That's incredible. The invisible things of him are clear by everything that's made. That absolutely blows my mind when you think about it. And here we have a literal um, picture of this, this portion in scripture. The things that are seen are made by things that are unseen, that can't be seen. We've understood that. We understand that now as Christians. I can look in an atom and I'll, look at it and I'll just see the marvellous wonder of God. And we've got physicists out there that are looking at the atom and they're not thinking anything out of it. You know? They're not thinking for a second how it came to be. It's tragic. It really is. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Everything is clear. It is seen. You have no excuse. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Right? The Bible says the heavens, everything in creation, declares the glory of God. And it speaks with a language that everyone can understand. I've already preached on that once before. I won't do it again. Um, but it's clear for people to understand. Okay, Don Gray Barnhouse puts it this way. This is a really interesting way that he put it. He said, let's push the idea into the classroom as a model for a second and we'll see how logical it is. He says, suppose that there is a class in physics in which a professor is lecturing on atomic science. A student shakes his head and says stubbornly, but I can't see an atom, therefore I won't believe in it. The professor then explains the observable effects of the movements of the atomic components. The boy continues to be stubborn and will not submit himself to the evidence. On examination day, he flunks the course. He comes to the professor to explain, but he is without excuse. That which may be known of atoms and their parts is manifested, for physical investigation has revealed it. For the invisible things of atomic components are clearly seen being understood by the effects that are manifested, so that the student is without excuse. Do you like that? I thought that was really clever. 
The invisible things from him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. His eternal power and Godhead. God's eternal power and Godhead is manifested in creation. When we, when we speak about the Godhead, those that are theological, what do we usually refer to when we speak about the Godhead? The Trinity. It, it doesn't actually say that in the text, but we always refer to it naturally as the Trinity. I'm not sure where that originated from, but we, we seem to do that. We speak about the Trinity. Dr. Henry Morris put together a fascinating thing with regards to the Trinity and the universe itself. He says everything within the universe, the Godhead is described within the universe itself, within the fabric of the universe. This is what he says. Have a listen. This will be fun too. He's revealed himself as a triune God. He is one God, the Bible says. The invisible, omnipresent Father and as visible, approachable Son and also as indwelling, guiding spirit. This remarkable structure of God, like his eternal power, is clearly reflected in his physical creation, which could almost be said to be a model of the Godhead. The created universe is actually a tri-universe of space, matter and time, with each permeating and representing the whole. However, the universe is not partly composed of space, partly of matter or partly of time, like, for example, the three sides of a triangle. He says the Trinity is not a trio or a triad, but a triunity, with each part comprising the whole, yet all three are required to make the whole. Thus, the universe is all space, all time, all matter, including energy as a form of matter. In fact, scientists speak of it as a space-matter-time continuum. You can't have one without the other, is what he says. All three elements of this universe have to be as one, and they are as one. But you know what's amazing? What's amazing is their order. Oh, that's only one of the amazing things. Their order is incredible. Have a listen to this. He says, furthermore, note the parallels between the tri-universe and the divine trinity in terms of the logical order of the three components. Space, like the Father, is the invisible, omnipresent background of everything. Matter, like the Son, reveals the universe, like the Godhead is visible. Right? The matter is visible by, by its effects as well. And understandable. Time, like the Spirit, is the, is the entity by which the universe becomes applicable and understandable in events and experience. So you experience this universe in time. Yeah. You know the universe is there, but it's sort of invisible. You can't really see it, but it's ever-present. right? But it reveals itself also in the matter, the actual hard stuff that you can actually see. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I like that. That's really cute. But what Henry Morris actually does is he actually splits that down, those three elements. He splits those down. Each of those also are triunities of one another. This is fun again. Oh, I'm having fun here. I know some, I like this. Right? Bear with me, all right? Space is a triunity com, uh, comprised of three dimensions, with each dimension permeating all space. The reality of any portion of space is obtained by multiplying the three dimensions together. Make sense? So you want to know empty space, you want to fill empty space, you've got to go length by height by width. You've got to, it's three-dimensional. 
right? Everything is three-dimensional. And you have to multiply them together. And this is where a lot of people sort of mess up a little bit when it comes to the Trinity, okay? Mathematics of the Trinity is not 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. It's 1 times 1 times 1 equals 1. 1 times 1 times 1. 1 times 1 times 1. Yeah, that's it, got it. Equals 1. So the Trinity is, is a product of itself. It's not, it's, not a, it's not an addition. You can't add to it. Similarly, time is future, present and past. Oh, okay, so sorry, with respect to space, going back to space. Remember the, the, the logical order of it. Have a think about it. Space is identified in one direction, right? We identified in one direction. You can't, you can't see one dimension, right? It's impossible to see one dimension. As soon as you see it, it becomes two-dimensional, Right? But we know and experience it in three dimensions. So space is identified in one, dimen- in d- one dimension, seen in two dimensions, experienced in three. Like that? How grouse is that? Father, son, I love it. Next one, time. Time is future, present and past. The future is the unseen source of time. It is manifested moment by moment in the present, but experienced and understood in the past. I'm having fun with this. Finally, matter. Matter is the unseen, omnipresent energy, manifesting itself in various forms and in different ways, visually, and experienced in corresponding phenomena. Right? So everything that's around us. And he says, he finishes off with this, he says, Thus the physical universe is a great trinity of trinities, with the inner relationships of each other, of each element beautifully modelling the relationship of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. It's an amazing effect that God is a triune God and he has made his creation to reflect himself. Wow, I love it. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. 21, verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. The Bible says they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Vain, empty, useless, of no consequence, of no value. Vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Many years ago, I was actually listening to a recording of um, Greg Kirkel, who was, uh, he was, he was doing apologetics, and it was a radio program. And a radio guy, uh, a guy, one of the audience people, phoned in, right? Kogel was making the point that the Big Bang works, the Big Bang works in our favour, right? Because if there was a beginning to the universe, there had to be a beginner. A material something cannot come from nothing. Well, this caller responded. Bear with me as you listen to this. This is amazing. He was very, very serious, the caller. He says, well, I don't think it is favourable because you could start with a base of nothing... And you could say that there was nothing but an infinite universe and a continuous moment. And eventually, a tiny, insignificant thing happened. A point happened in the nothingness. And the point expanded, which is extremely simple. It requires no intelligence, so no intelligent God had to intervene. 
All we needed is a tiny imperfection in the perfect nothingness. And that imperfection expanded and became variegated and increasingly complex. And soon you had galaxies and planets, etc. One could say a point happens in the nothingness. But became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. This is the explanation of something coming from nothing. And we've got that. We've got scientists, and when you push them, that's what they believe. Nothing created everything. It, 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 it doesn't follow. Nothing there follows. It doesn't make any sense. Everything we understand about the physics in the universe actually tells us that it actually begins in order, in some sort of an order, and everything actually becomes disordered. It's one of the laws of thermodynamics. We know that everything begins in order and ends up disordered. You only have to come to my house to know that. Starts off ordered. And you know the incredible thing is, Maria does an incredible amount of work in making it ordered. Do you know how much work it actually takes to make it disordered? Nothing. It takes nothing to get it disordered. Right? But Maria gets frustrated because she likes it ordered. But it takes effort to make it ordered. And it doesn't take any effort to make it disordered. And we are a naturally lazy people. So, everything we see has prints of design in it. Everything we see around us has elements of design. We see it clearly. You think about a ne the neck of a giraffe. Do you know that when a giraffe actually goes down to be able to get any grass, he doesn't just eat off the trees, but it can actually eat grass, and his neck drops down... Do you know that the amount of blood that would actually go straight into that head of his is enough force there to actually explode his mind, his brain? There is enough force. But somehow, someone designed little valves in his neck to actually stop that from going all the way through and leaves it at a proper, at a proper state. Equally, when he lifts his head up, really, like when you go from upside down to straight up, you'd almost faint. You'd expect the giraffe would definitely faint. Okay, goes up, there's not enough blood in his brain and he'd collapse and faint. No, the valves <laughs> open up again and it allows the blood flow. How does that happen by accident? How did that happen by, by, by piecemeal fashion? Oh, well, we tried this one, that one didn't work, but we tried that one, that one didn't work. How does that work? It doesn't work. Think of the lungs of the bird. A lung of a bird is very different to the lung of a human being. A lung of a human being, it actually catches the air and we breathe in and out through the same. A bird's lung is different. It actually goes straight through. Our aircraft engines are actually created, modelled on the bird. Interesting. We designed the aircraft engines on something that happened by complete freak of accident in nature. We fly in those planes. Anyway... <laughs> You understand? So it goes straight through. Now what I want to know is how did we get from a fish to a pig to a bird with a lung that has to... How does that happen? It's got to go from empty to, from, from, a, from a concealed space to a flow through. How does that happen? Bit by bit. Imagine how many levels of explosions a bombardier beetle would have had to have had before he found the right mix. You're thinking about it? Okay, it's not possible. These are complete freaks, okay? And they don't have any way of explaining them. They are vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart is darkened. 
They don't realise it. But, but, the next verse, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. A perfect picture of this is ancient Egypt. Okay? We change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. Their worship of the pharaohs as gods is, is evident. Their picture right throughout history of birds also worshipped the eagle that's on, you know, the, it was in the Egyptian culture, it was in the Babylonian, um, we're supposed to have it in, a, in the American one there as well, the big, the big eagle there. There's a, there's a worship going towards those birds. And then we go to the four-footed beasts. How they feel towards cows is a really important one. See, they won't actually slaughter cows. The cow has to die naturally. But they won't actually kill it. Right? They won't actually kill them. They'll eat the meat of the cow, but it has to die naturally. And there's a lot of bushes, butchers out there just making sure that those cows are dying naturally. So they worship the cow. And what's the other one? Creeping things. The dung beetle. Seen those little scarab beetles? Those little dung beetles? You've seen those? They've got the little shell and the, and, and the legs front and back. Those scarab beetles, they also worship those. Someone once said that they worship them because they seem to appear out of nowhere. Every time something drops a bit of its business, these dung beetles come up out of nowhere and roll them all up and push them away and then disappear again. I don't know whether that's true or not, but they seem to worship these dung beetles as well, the scarab beetles. A wonderful picture there. But the Bible says this as well, in verse 24. He says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonour their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The only verse, portion of the scripture that I'm going to get you to turn to is Isaiah chapter 44. I want you to see this in real-time history. Then we're going to spend just a few minutes going through some modern examples. And then we'll close. Isaiah chapter 44. Okay. We're going to go down to verse 8. Chapter 44, verse 8 in Isaiah. He says, fear not. We're going to go to verse 20. Fear not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. They that make a graven image are all of them vanity, and their delectable things shall not profit. And they are their own witnesses. They see not, nor know, that they may be ashamed. Who hath formed a god or a or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are of men. Let them all be gathered together, let them stand up. Yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. The smith with his tongs both worketh in the coals, and fashioneth it with hammers, and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry, and his strength faileth, he drinketh no water, and is faint. You understand what's going on here? He's working, he's working, he's working this, this, this item. He's putting it together. He's tired, he's hungry, but he's not going to stop. He's going to keep doing it. He's going to keep doing this work. 13. 
The carpenter stretcheth out his rule, he marketh it out with a line, he fitteth it with planes, and he marketh it out with a compass, and maketh it, maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. Then shall it be for a man to burn... For he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshippeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. He burneth part thereof in the fire, and part thereof he eats. He eateth flesh. He roasteth roast, and is satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the residue thereof he maketh a god. Even his graven image, he falleth down unto it, and worshippeth it, and prayeth unto it, and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They have not known, nor understood. For he hath shut their eyes, he being God, that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. Interesting. Verse 19. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned part of it in the fire, yea, also I have baked bread upon the coals thereof, I have roasted flesh and eaten it, and, I sh and shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes, he deceived his heart. He a deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? That's amazing. Are you understanding what God's saying here? Can you understand the level of insanity that people have to get to before what, what elements of their mind has been removed? The Bible says God has blinded them, that they cannot see. And they cannot hear. And this is the picture that we have here. When we reject the wonderful truth of God, we find ourselves worshipping the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. We are blind, fools. That's why the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. The understanding of God is evident. It's self-evident in creation. And yet, happy to worship a tree. Happy to worship nature. Happy to worship nature. You understand that we were created to worship. We were created to worship. But when we misplace our worship, when we take it from God, we need something to replace it. This particular area that we're getting into is worshipping the creature more than the creator. So I want to just carry that forward for the last portion. This isn't old. This isn't new. This has happened all through history. We need to replace that worship with something else. And it started a long, long time ago, as we saw in that text. Plato said, We shall affirm that the cosmos, more than anything else, resembles most closely that living creature of which all other living creatures, severely or genetically, are a portion. What does that remind you of? It starts with E. Evolution. Right? didn't start with Charles Darwin. It actually started a long, long time ago. He says, A living creature which is fairest of all and in ways most perfect. He's speaking about the creation. He's speaking about the universe. The earth is literally our mother. 
says a more modern counterpart. Not only because we depend on her for nurture and shelter, but even more because the human species has been shaped by her in the womb of evolution. Our salvation depends upon our ability to create a religion of nature. This is René Dubos. He's a member of the planetary, of planetary citizens. The confused misplacement of adoration from God to nature seems to also have the natural effect of hating man. The more we come to love God, the more we come to love man. Did you ever notice that? The more you love God, the more you love man. You have a natural desire to love man more. If you're not loving man very much, then perhaps you need to be really focusing on the Lord. But the more man rejects God as his centre of adoration and replaces it with nature... What we witness is the shifting of affection to the hatred of man. You understand, we love man through loving God because man is created in the image of God. When we hate God, then we hate man because man is created in the image of God. Phasing out the human race will solve every problem on earth, social and environmental. Dave Foreman, founder of Earth First. I suspect that eradicating smallpox was wrong. It placed an important part, it played an important part in balancing ecosystems. John Davis, editor of Earth First Journal. Human happiness and certainty. Okay, there. Human happiness and certain and certainly human for, 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 I don't know what this word says. Fecundity, I don't know what it means is not as important as wild and healthy plants, planets. Some of us can only hope for the right virus to come along. David Graber, biologist, National Park Reserve. Uh, please note that these aren't quotes from some fringe group or little, with little or no influence. Listen to this one. If I were reincarnated, I would wish to be returned to Earth as a killer virus to lower human population levels. Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, patron of World Wildlife Fund. One America burdens the earth much more than 20 Bangladeshes. This is a terrible thing to say. In order to stabilise world population, we must eliminate 350,000 people per day. It's a horrible thing to say, but it's just as bad not to say it. Jacques Cousteau, UNESCO. A total population of 250 to 300 million people a 95% decline from present levels would be ideal. Ted Turner, founder of CNN and major United Nations contributor. Childbearing should be a punishable crime against society. Unless the parents hold a government licence, all potential parents should be required to use contraceptive chemicals. The government issuing antidotes to citizens chosen for childbearing uh, and the government issuing antidotes to citizens chosen for childbearing. Chosen for childbearing. This goes back to Platonic philosophy. This is read, you can read this in the Republic. This is exactly what he says. Exactly. Goes back a long, long time ago. That's by David Brower, first executive director of the Sierra Club. Friends, each of these people are major contributors to global and economic policy today. Worldwide organisations through the UN the Club of Rome, the IPCC, etc. We are soon to be experiencing the effects of those policies here in Australia, even.
The current policies and beliefs come from the writings of certain individuals over the past 50 years, notably, notably man, such men like Professor Paul Ehrlich, who said, A cancer is an uncontrolled multiplication of cells. The population explosion is an uncontrolled multiplication of people. We must shift our efforts from the treatment of the symptoms to the cutting out of the cancer. The operation will demand many apparently brutal and heartless decisions. That's what he wrote in The Population Bomb, his book. The linking of human beings to that of a virus is repeated time and again. And you hear it. Listen for it. You'll hear it. This one is... Last couple of quotes. This one's here by uh, Sir James Lovelock, who said, Humans on the earth behave in some ways like a pathogenic microorganism or like the cells of a tumour. James Lovelock in Healing Gaia. That was one of his books. The earth, the earth has cancer and the cancer is man. Club of Rome. Mankind at the turning point. Ultimately, the view can be conser conservatively summed up by Dr Fred F. Noss. He said, The collective needs of non-human species must take precedence over the needs and desires of humans. Friends, it's not a population that's our problem. History demonstrates that our concern over population has been there from, for a long time. We don't have a population problem. We have a, um, a worship problem. We don't have a population problem. Listen to this quote. This is the last quote. It's an interesting one, especially with respect to when it was quoted. What most frequently meets our view and occasions complaint is our teeming population. Our numbers are burdensome to the world, which can hardly support us. In very deed, pestilence and famine and wars and earthquakes have to be regarded as a remedy for nations as the means of pruning the luxuriance of the human race. Tertullian, 4th century AD. Population on earth was 190 million. It's been there. It's been there from the get-go. And it's there because of our misplace of worship. It's always been there. You changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Friends, we've got a dying world out there. We've got a lot of people that need to be reached with the gospel. We need to be able to share it. If we can share it one person a day, we'd be blessing the Lord and blessing those individuals. But when we sit idly by and we let the rest of the world catch up on us and we don't spend the time that is very, very quickly disappearing before our eyes on those things and the things that matter, the things that are eternal, then perhaps we're wasting it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your words. We thank you for the wonderful truth of Scripture. We thank you, dear Lord, that we can apply it in real time, even today. We ask, dear Lord, that you'll change our hearts, that we will dedicate our time to the things that matter most, that we would worship you, that we would grow to love you more, that we can love our fellow man more, that we can be more like Christ, he willing to die for those that are yet his enemies. Father, help us all grow. And in this church, dear Lord, we pray that the word of God would be preeminent in our time of worship, that it would be a time that we would study and know and read and learn, 
grow and bless others. Father, I thank you, dear Lord, for this message, and I just pray that you be with us for the rest of this afternoon. In Jesus' glorious name, amen.